0: Second Peter, uh, we started last week, and uh, we looked at the introduction of uh, our, our study together in second Peter and, and today uh, we want to continue that in the way we look at the first couple verses here. Um, you'll notice there on your uh, your outline you have a little uh, word cloud put up there, and uh, you can notice some of those words that are uh, distinctly larger means that there's a little more emphasis in that. In the uh, book of Second Peter, about those words, it's just a neat little way to do that. But um, we want to just remind ourselves that uh, of the, the the background and the, the setting here of this book, it, it was the Christians to whom Peter wrote were mainly mostly Gentiles, and uh, Second Peter was written to the same group of people as the uh, as First Peter, because he says in. Chapter one, or Chapter three, verse one of Second Peter. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. So whoever he wrote First Peter to is the sec- same group that he wrote um, Second Peter to. And we know who he wrote First Peter to. He said to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of the Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. That's 1 Peter one one. So we know who the audience is. A little bit about the background. We looked at last week that 1 Peter was written mostly to suffering Christians, and it was meant to encourage them in their time of suffering. 2 Peter, however, is written in a whole different light. It was written to expose the false teachers of their day. And uh, it was really written to combat all the <clears throat> the beliefs and the activities that were Taking place among certain heretical teachers of Peter's day, and those those preachers who were heretical during Peter's day really uh, threatened, you might say, the life of the church and the well being and the spiritual being of new believers. And so Peter was very much concerned about some of this errant teaching that was going around. And uh, he doesn't pull any punches in this book. If you've read through the book as we did last week in the in the first. Uh, introductory study of it. We read through the entire book. I encourage you to do that, not once, but read it through a couple times each week and you'll, you'll get to know uh, this letter very well. But he really, uh, he makes his opinion of these guys very clear. He calls them things like useless as dried up springs of water. He compares their teaching to a dog returning to vomit, <laughs> okay? Uh, he doesn't really uh, provide any comfort for these people at all. Uh, very little grace is extended to these false heretical teachers. And we saw that the the letter had three primary purposes. The first one was to alert these readers to the dangers of false teachings. And then secondly, to remind the readers about their personal faith, that it shouldn't remain uh, static, that our faith is something that's active. It should be growing each day. And then the third thing was to encourage believers in their faith and that they should be expecting the Lord Jesus Christ to return uh, one day. And I just want to say that, you know, this is not necessarily speaking here about these false teachers in a future tense. These were false teachers that actually infiltrated their church as they knew it in their time. And, you know, we have that same situation today in our Christian churches today. There's, there's certain doctrines and certain teachers that infiltrate um, churches and try to uh, persuade people to follow their teachings, even though they're false, they're not biblical. And it's taken on its whole movement. And uh, they were already kind of enduring some of this errant teaching, and so Peter is writing to them, and he doesn't want to kind of coddle them in any way. He wants them to know very boldly that they need to be on the alert, uh, for these people, and it doesn't really. If you look through the book, it doesn't really expose their teachings. It doesn't say, "Here's what their teachings is, uh, are," and this is wrong. He doesn't do that. It, what's kind of interesting is that Peter, rather than deal with the doctrine that they're talking about, whatever it might be, their errant doctrines, he doesn't pull a doctrine up and say, "Oh, they're teaching that Jesus isn't God," or "They're they're teaching this," or "They're teaching that." There's no resurrection. He doesn't really focus on their teachings. He focuses more, you might say, on who they are, what their personality is like, what an errant teacher, what a false teacher looks like, what their characteristics are like. Because the one thing that you'll, you'll understand is that even though the teachings may change, everybody's always coming up with a new doctrine. If you've ever noticed this, uh, people are always, oh, I, you know, the Lord showed me this new thing in the word. And, and they have a whole... You know, following behind their new found doctrine or whatever it might be. Um, They write books on it, they do all kinds of things. It's it's ridiculous. Uh, You know, this is the truth that we have from God. There's no new truth. This is what He gave us. So beware of anybody that says, Oh, I have a new truth from the Lord, or Thus saith the Lord. Uh, We believe the canon of Scripture is closed. Therefore, Um, if God's going to reveal anything to our hearts and to our lives, he's going to do it through the word of God, through verses or through the spirit bringing back verses to our remembrance. He's not going to give you some new truth. Uh, And so we see here that this false teaching kind of invaded their church. And the one thing he wants them to understand is, even though the teachings may change, people always come up with new stuff. Their characteristics don't. And if you look at the characteristics of a false teacher, you can spot them a mile off. It doesn't matter what's coming out of their mouth. Even though you may not understand exactly what their teachings are, you can focus in on the, the characteristics and you can spot somebody who is trying to lead people astray. And so his goal here is to expose these false teachers, not so much their doctrines, but who they are specifically, what kind of people make up a false teacher. And he Helps us do that, and we talked about last week how one of the key words in the book of Second Peter is knowledge or know to know. And we're, the outline basically for Second Peter could be: you could say know your salvation, know your scriptures, know your adversaries, know your prophecy, or know your sanctification. And so it, it's kind of important that we, we understand that Peter wants them to know something. You know, when I run into believers who are just kind of, you know, have you ever run into a Christian who's just, there's no joy in their life? There's nothing there. It's just, you know, oh, woe is me. And, you know, it's kind of like Eeyore. You know, they got this black cloud or the, the guy on, on uh, Char- Charlie Brown. They got a black cloud follows them around and they're just down in the mouth and they're constantly, you know, oh, I'm just suffering for Jesus. And there's no joy at all in their life. And you wonder, what's going on there? You know, why Why are they that way? And what I've found is, a lot of times, when believers don't have the proper knowledge of who God is and what God has done in their life, they, they can't have that kind of joy that God promises in His Word. That word, knowledge, is is very prominent in the first three chapters here. It's, it's throughout the book here. It's, it's, it's just, you know, it appears... I think, 16 times, over and over and over again, and six of those times, it's the, the word in the, the, the Greek, basically, epignosko, which means not just knowledge, but almost, it, it intensifies the knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. It's something that you've, you know, you, you can really say that you know without a doubt, personally. And so... What Peter's saying is, if you have that kind of knowledge about certain things, you're going to be protected in your Christian growth, in your Christian faith, from all these errant doctrines that are out there. You're going to be able to be discerning. You're going to be able to be thoughtful and analytical and evaluate, well, that person's saying that, but where does that line up with the Word of God? But you have to know what the Word of God says. You have to know what the Word of God says about your salvation. You have to know what the Word of God says about itself, about the Scriptures. You have to know definitely what the Word of God says about these false teachers. And you also have to know what the Word of God says about your sanctification. What is your Christian life supposed to look like? And if you know all those things, then that will help you to kind of have that gird of protection, that that helmet of salvation. Uh, Jesus Christ and the knowledge of Him in our salvation is our first line of defense, you might say. Uh, when, you, when you think of Satan out there, he's wielding this sword of false doctrine. He's trying to get you to follow him. And he wants to strike that blow against you. And the only thing that insulates you from his blows is the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's a personal knowledge that we have. This isn't something that's religious in any way. We know God through the Lord Jesus Christ as believers just like we know our wife, just like we know our neighbor, just like we know other family members. He's a person. We relate to him personally. And so the the theme here of 2 Peter is really if you know the one who gives you the ability to discern truth from error, then you'll be able to see what's right and what's wrong. It's all about really knowing who Christ is, knowing Jesus personally. And that's, Kind of the emphasis of the entire book, and if you know that, you're going to be able to experience more of the Christian life in its fullness. Uh, First Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion. We went through that when we went through First Peter, and talks about the the fiery persecution that's about to come to the saints in that book. But here in Saint or in Second Peter, Satan is this. He's kind of a, a serpent. Seeking to deceive. And, and that's what he is pictured as. You know, I want you to understand that false teaching from within the church, when you have a body of believers, false teaching from within the church is much more dangerous than persecution from without the church. People say, well, do you think there'll be a day when the church will be persecuted in America? Oh, sure there will be. But you know what? I think that the church will prosper in that situation, as it does all over the world. Persecution always kind of serves as a a cathartic cleansing and strengthening of the church. It's kind of like going on a special diet and cleaning your system out, you know. Uh, Do that once in a while, you drink this weird stuff, and that's all you drink, and, you know, you do it for a couple days, and literally it just cleans everything out. You know, your pores, everything. You can't eat anything during that time. And, you know, it's just a it's kind of a cathartic thing. The first couple of days of that is tough. You know, You man, your stomach's ground. And after day two or three, you're feeling OK. You could go on for another week if you had to. Um, that's kind of what persecution does for the church. It cleanses it out. It cleans it out. It, it helps it become stronger. But. To the opposite of that, false teaching from within the church weakens the church and it really ruins its testimony because people look at the, the body of believers and, oh, you look at them, they're arguing, you know, the church split, this and that. And it just ruins the testimony that that church may have for Christ in the community in which they live. And the only weapon really to fight against false teaching and the devil's lies is the word of God. And so it comes back down to that word knowledge, knowing what God wants us to know. And so the next couple of weeks we're going to be looking at what it means to know Him, to know the Savior, to know Christ. Uh, how we can grow in our relationship with Him. How we can experience this transformed life that He saved us to. Uh, salvation isn't a so much a religious experience, beloved. It's a personal experience. One comes to faith to know Christ through faith. And when you do that, you know, it's, it's so important to understand that, that, that Christ wants to know us in a very real way. Over in the Gospel of John, chapter uh, 17, verse 3, here's what Jesus says about knowing him. He says, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God. It's Jesus speaking. And Jesus Christ, here, whom you have sent. So it's very important that we understand who Christ is. It's very important that we understand that God desires us to have a relationship with him. It It isn't some static kind of relationship where he's up in heaven and we're down here and never the two shall meet till we go to glory that's not the kind of god we serve. We serve a god that says, "No, I want to be intimately acquainted with you. I already am, but I want to be intimately involved in your life in every step of the the process." And the mistake we make sometimes is we forget that. Because we don't see God every day visibly. Maybe we look at creation and we see the handiwork that he's done for us and we're reminded of him. But God isn't in the business of appearing to people today. So as a result, you know, out of sight, out of mind. That's what happens. And so we need to be reminded that 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 shouldn't happen. Uh, It's not simply good enough to know about Christ. We must know him personally. Philippians 3.10 says this, that I may know him, right, and the power of his resurrection. And that I may share his sufferings becoming like Him in his death. See, it's one thing to know that, oh yeah, Jesus and church and all that stuff, but it's another thing to know him in a personal way, in an intimate way. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he gives us his righteousness. We don't have a righteousness of our own. He gives us his. And he becomes our savior. It's a personal transaction. It's a a personal experience that you go through. Uh, It's a a time when you can actually be transformed. The Bible says that you're ushered out of the, 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 the darkness and into the light. He's taken your hard, stony heart, and he's made it a heart of flesh. He's transformed you. That's what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. I'm reminded of a story of Joey Barrow, who was a young teenager. And when he went to school, his classmates would always label him the, you know, the the sissy and uh you know he's kind of a meek kid and at 18 while other kids were out playing sports and doing other stuff he was taking violin lessons (laughs) so you can just see where this is going and one day they called him sissy one too many times and joey just lost his temper and he smashed the boy who made fun of him smacked him right in the head with his violin (laughs) Um, that didn't help I mean, you know, the stories abounded after that incident. Oh, yeah, what are you going to do, hit me with your violin again? Uh, It was just kind of, everybody made fun of this kid everywhere he went. Well, one boy who observed this didn't laugh, the story says. His name was Thurston McKinney. And Thurston McKinney was one of his classmates, didn't really know Joe that well. But he was this big, strapping kind of farm kid, just strong. Um, And he thought, you know, it's time I help this kid out. It's time he has a little more muscle on his frame, so that people don't pick on him and mess with him so much. And this guy went to the gym regularly, and uh, finally he, he asked Joey to come along. He said, "Come on, you know, I, I take you to the gym. I'll show you what it means to work out, and you can work on your your muscles and your body, and hopefully help you out with this." And as always, Joey always had his violin with him. You, know, you take a violin to a gym? That's pretty not not that cool, and. Uh, Thurston finally said, look, if you want to work out with me, you're going to have to rent a locker, and uh, to rent a locker, it was 50 cents, and the only money that Joey could come up with was the money that his mom gave him each week for his violin lessons, which was 50 cents. So Joey borrowed some of his friend's gym trunks and uh, some old tennis shoes, and he rented this locker, and... uh, put his violin in it, and went to work out with this boy named Thurston. And the first time Thurston invited Joey to spar with him, Joey clobbered him, just literally clobbered him, flattened him. And Thurston had this dazed response, and uh, he was already, this Thurston McKinney was already a Detroit Golden Gloves champion. And he looked at Joey and he said, boy, you're going to throw that violin away. (laughs) And with the money that his mother had intended to finance weekly violin lessons, Joey kept this permanent locker. And he went to the gym faithfully. In five years' time, Joey Barrow would have turned 23. And you know, he was the heavyweight champion boxing of the world. And... They say little about Thurston McKinney, but he took this Joey Barrow under his wing. And Joey actually dropped his last name, Barrow, so his mother wouldn't find out that he was skipping violin lessons and taking boxing lessons. And the world that knew for years who this sissy Joey Barrow was, that he had been transformed into the unbeatable, they called him the Brown Bomber, Joe Lewis. Amazing story. This kid was just transformed in a matter of time because somebody took the time to do the right thing, to give him the proper knowledge, to see his body go through a transformation. Well, it's interesting. When we come to 2 Peter, we see another man here who has been truly transformed. His name is Simon Peter. We're introduced to him there in verse 1. And his transformation didn't really produce a fighter but it's almost like it took a fighter and, and turned him into a servant. It was kind of the transformation in reverse, you might say. And so dramatic, I think, was the change in, in Simon Peter's life. That when he wrote this epistle, he wanted to make sure that he understood that the Christian faith was never something that was to be remain static. Or unchanged. The, the Christian faith always had to add something. It always had to be growing. And if you're a believer here today, you should be continually experiencing change in your walk with Christ. You should be continually seeing God transform you. And Second Peter helps us to see this character and this transformation take place. And it really serves as a way of reminding us not to pursue This change simply on our own, as Joey did with a friend, but with our only power. Our transformation is a cooperative venture, you might say, between us and God. Uh, With our sincere and positive efforts to make change and and believe and have faith, God supernaturally kind of comes in and gives us the, the will and the desire and the power to do it. But it's not something you can just pull out of thin air, just like Joey couldn't become a a world-class boxer just because he wanted to. He had to do hard work. There was some investment that he had to make. And see, it's it's really grounded. Our change is grounded in the unchanging character that we find in Scripture, that being Jesus Christ. Well, look at the first verse here. And we're going to kind of look at these first couple verses today. It starts off there in the ESV. It says, Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice that your your Bible there has two names. Simon Peter, most likely. And and both of those names are important. God put them in there for a reason. Simon is the Greek term. Uh, Simeon is the Hebrew term. So some translations use the Hebrew, some translations use the Greek. So whether you have Simon or Simeon, it's the same name. It's just drawn from a different language. And... uh, we want to make sure that we understand what the origin of this, this name is. Uh, Simeon, who, he was the head of the, one of the tribes of Israel. And so he was given a name, a birth name, after that. Uh, his father named him Simon. That's where he got his first, the first section of his name. And uh, that was a very common name, by the way, uh, in the time That it was given. It was so common that there's nine other people, basically, in the New Testament, who are called Simon. Nine. That's a lot. And so, if he just said, Simon wrote this, well, you would ask, who who is this guy? (laughs) Which Simon? So he wanted to make sure, in, in uh, in, in very specific terms, I guess, that people knew who was writing this epistle. So he writes... Simon Peter. Peter is, is the word that Christ called him. It means rock. Um, in in Aramaic it's Cephas. So that's where sometimes he's called Cephas or Peter, same. It's all, it's all mean the same. But he wanted his full identity to be expressed here. And he wanted everyone to know that it was him who was writing this, this letter. It wasn't some other Simon, it was Simon Peter. And if you think about that name, Simon Peter, we always kind of relate to Simon. Everybody knows who Simon Peter is. Uh, The first name there, Simon, was really a, a name of dishonor, and Peter was a name of honor. Because Simon was speaking of his time before Christ, Peter was his time after Christ, after he was introduced to Christ. And it's funny that the Holy Spirit had him write down both names. I mean, Jesus renamed him Peter. You think that you would use that name, but no, he uses the word Simon Peter. And it's almost like he's telling us, Look, I'm just like you. You know, I got an old old history too that sometimes I have to deal with. And I, I'm new in Christ as well. And you it's funny when you see Jesus addressing Peter. Sometimes he doesn't address him as Peter, right? He addresses him as Simon. And what's the reason behind that is because he's saying to look, you know, in John 21, for example, he calls him Simon three times. And really he's telling Peter, look, you're not acting like Peter, pal. You're acting like your old self. You're acting like Simon. Stop it. So this combination of Simon, Peter occurs quite a bit when we run into this designation. And You know, a lot of times in our own lives, we struggle with the same thing, don't we? I mean, it's not like we get saved at one point in time, we come to Christ, and from then on we live perfect Christian lives. No. On occasion, you know what? We fall into sin. On occasion, we start living like our old self. And God has to correct that in our lives. But it's it's almost as if Peter's saying, hey, you know, I just want you to identify with me and, and just to know that I'm not perfect, even though... You know, I was there with Jesus even though uh, I did a lot of things and performed a lot of miracles. Um, I'm stuck with both names. And until we're glorified and in his presence, frankly, so are we. Uh, I get real irritated with Christians that look down their, their righteous noses at other believers almost to say as if, well, you know, I used to be like that until I matured in the faith. And it's like, give me a break. Who do you think you are? The, the Bible says just the opposite, you know, except by the grace of God, there go I. See, when we come to our Christian walks, we have no no uh, reason or even purpose for being snooty or right, self-righteous because we don't have any righteousness, right? Our righteousness comes from Christ. And so he's reminding us right here with the first two words, you know what? Remember, you were, you were a person that was transformed. You were a person who was saved. Just like Peter came from Simon. He was transformed by God's Christ's glorious power. Everyone who comes to Christ should experience that transformation. And if there is no transformation, there's no change. And there's no change, there's no salvation. Because we're not talking just about a religious exercise here. We're talking about a living, breathing relationship with the living God who says that he will transform you. So if there's no change in your life and you call yourself a Christian, you better go back and examine your faith. And you know what? The Bible encourages us to do that, doesn't it? It, it, Over and over, it tells us, make sure you're in the faith. Examine to see whether you're in the faith. Why is that? Because it's such an important issue. I mean, who wants to die one day being religious only to end up in hell? (laughs) That wouldn't be good. So we have to examine that. We have to see, is God working in our lives? Do we see it, that we're a growth process? It's a process going on. We're not perfect. Philippians says that we're, we're seeking to attain, and God will perform it. He's, he's right, and He's just, and He'll continue that work that He began in you. But there's going to be some bumps in the road, just like there was in the life of Peter. So we're comfortable with Peter. Side note here, you never see a place in Scripture where the Bible says, Saul, Paul. (laughs) I mean, right? You know, you don't see that. There's a reason for that. You know, I think Simon or Peter dealt with this a lot more than other people. And we see that in his life. He was very, you know, kind of off the hook. Just, you know, he'd say whatever came to mind and got him in trouble a lot of times. And I think it took a period of time before Simon was transformed into Peter when he really was being able to be used by Christ and by God. Well, he also classifies himself here as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, which is an interesting classification because he wants people to know that, first of all, he's a servant or some translations say bondservant. Okay, basically it should say slave, that's the word, but because we live in an age of political correctness, we don't use words like slave, but really it should be Simon Peter, a slave of Jesus Christ and an apostle. Of Jesus Christ. It's a good balance, if you stop and think about it, you know, between humility, being a servant, being a slave, and being an apostle. One speaks of of humility, one speaks of servanthood, the other speaks of leadership, of authority, of someone who's being sent out as a representative of the living Christ. It's a perfect balance for a spiritual leader. He's a servant, he's a slave, and yet he's still a leader. When you think of a slave, you think of somebody who is in submission to somebody else, right? I mean, that's what a slave is. It's a slave who is in put in a place of obedience of others. They're they're called to submit. They don't have a choice. That really puts them in a place of humility. Um, and what he's doing here is he's putting us on all the same level, because if you know Jesus Christ, we're called to be his slave. We're called to be his servant. And all throughout Scripture, you see Moses, Joshua, David, all these people. Paul, they were all servants. They were all slaves of their God. And so Peter's identifying himself with all of us. Even though he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, he spent time with the living Lord. He did miracles. He did all this stuff. He was chosen by Christ himself. But he still says, you know what? I'm still a servant, just like you're a servant. There's no classifications in Christianity. And when you begin to make those classifications and you begin to say, oh, well, here are the Christians that have this and the the have-nots and the haves and all, boy, you're really dividing the body of Christ. And the Word of God never tells us to do that. So it's it's good to understand that we're all in this together. Amen? We're all sinners in need of grace and a Savior. We start there. William Barclay wrote this about the idea of of being a slave or servanthood. He said, in the ancient world, a master possessed his slaves in the same way that he possessed his tools. A servant can change his master, but a slave cannot. The Christian inalienably belongs to God. To call the Christian the slave of God means that he is unqualifiably at the disposal of God. In the ancient world, the master could do what he liked with his slave. He had the same power over his slave as he had over the inanimate objects he possessed. The Christian belongs to God. For God to send him where he will and to do with him what he will. The Christian is the man or woman who has no rights of his or her own. To call the Christian the slave of God means that the Christian owes an unquestioning obedience to God. To call the Christian the slave of God means that he must be constantly in the service of God. The slave had literally no time of his own, no holidays, no time off, no working hours settled by agreement, no leisure. All of his time belonged to the master. The Christian is necessarily the man every moment of whose life and time is spent in the service of God, end quote. Wow. When is the last time you heard that describe the Christian life? You're a slave of God. See, the slave was well known in ancient time. And so here for Peter to say that he was a slave of Jesus Christ meant that he was a humble servant. That he was bound to duty to do whatever the Lord wanted him to do. That was Peter. But he also says there that he's what? He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, on one hand, comes to the, the pen here and he describes his servanthood, his humility. But on the other hand, it's almost like to say, hey, don't think I'm a doormat. Because <laughs> I'm not. I'm an apostle. Well, what was an apostle? That, that term means to be sent forth officially by someone, this person being Jesus Christ. See, to be elevated to the office of apostle, you had to have certain things in order. You had to be divinely called by the risen Lord. You had to be commissioned as a witness of the resurrected Christ. The office of apostle is no longer in effect today because there's nobody going around seeing the risen Lord and being selected by him to be an apostle. The Bible says that our Lord is in heaven. He's not in the business of going around appointing apostles. Now, we're all apostles in the general sense. We're all sent ones. You know, the Great Commission makes that clear. But the official office of apostle doesn't exist anymore. And it, it contains some certain things. The office of apostle, all the apostles experienced supernatural, miraculous workings through them. Signs and wonders, things that would just blow our minds. Raising the dead, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, all those things. All the works that Jesus did when he was alive, he kind of transferred that power to the apostles. Because the church was just giving birth, it was just getting started, and they needed that kind of affirmation of their authority. If they just went out on their own without having those supernatural abilities, people probably wouldn't even give them a second glance. But when they went into a town, and there was somebody sick, and they went up and said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, and the person did... You could see where that would give a little more emphasis to the message that they carried. And until the church was established, that's the kind of focus that was needed on them. But after the church was established, it says that the church was founded on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. After that was done, well, it went away. And that's what the scriptures teach. And so he served, and yet he had this God-given authority. He was under Christ, and yet he was a representative of Christ. Very much like us today. I mean, we're servants of God, but we're also sent ones. We don't hold the official name of apostle or office of apostle, but we're very much sent ones for the cause of Christ. And so there's there's a model there for us in our spiritual walk. It's a mixture of both humility and God-given authority and leadership. You know, sometimes you meet people that are so humble that they're—it's almost, you know, it's like milk toast. They're—they're they're just not; you, they can't stand on their own feet. And that's not what God calls us to do. We're not to be doormats where people just walk over us. Oh yeah, I'm just bearing this cross for Christ. No. Sometimes you have to exert authority. Sometimes you have to be the leader that God called you and gifted you to be. And sometimes that comes supernaturally. I mean, personally, I don't, I'm not into confronting people. I don't like to confront people. I, I shy away from that. You know, if some, something needs to be confronted, I'm usually not the person that you'll pick to go do it. I just don't like it. It's not in my personality. Have I had to confront people at times? Definitely. Was it easy? No, but God gave me the ability to do it. So different people, and then you have other people that that's all they do. Right? I mean, they confrontation, you know. They're just pointing out everything to everybody about everybody else. And, you know, the word of God speaks about those people too, right? You might want to look in your own eye first. Uh, check out things first before you go around pointing your finger at somebody else. So it's got to be a balance. It can't be one or the other. And that's, that's the purpose here of him sharing, I think, these two names. And the idea that he was a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 1, to those. To those. Well, who are those? We already kind of discussed this a little bit. This is the second letter that Peter's writing to these people. And he said in verse 1 of chapter 3, it's the second letter that I'm writing to you. And in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of remembrance. So he's bringing, he's writing in a way that's saying, hey, I've got to remind you about some things. I know I already wrote you once. Well, who is he writing to? He's writing to those people who were part of the dispersia, and they were, they were spread all over those different countries. We read that in verse 1 of 1 Peter 1. And so he's writing to uh, Christians here, but mostly those who were scattered among the Gentile world. We don't know specifically. He doesn't say this is to this person or that church. It's just a general group of believers who were scattered all over the place. Predominantly Gentiles. But obviously, there's probably some Jews in there as well who came to faith in Christ. Uh, the, the, the letter here was written from Rome, even like 1 Peter was, and uh, probably Around sixty-seven, sixty-eight, somewhere around there. So he was a prisoner at this time. Is a prison epistle. He was facing death. He makes that clear a couple times. He says, "Pretty soon I'm going to die." You know, in, in so many words. Um, and tradition tells us that he did die. He was crucified upside down. But when we come to the last half of this verse one, he begins to start this aspect of understanding some knowledge that we need to know and he begins with our own salvation he begins sharing with us really where does this salvation come from what's the source of our salvation because he says to those and then he says this the next words are very critical he says who have obtained who have obtained If you've obtained something, the idea here in this word is that you've received it as a gift. It's not you working real hard for your money and then going out and purchasing something yourself. It's not talking about that. It's really talking about something that is is gained by divine will. Something that God gives you. The same word there is used when they used to uh, draw lots. They would draw lots in, in Bible times sometimes to reveal God's will. They would say, okay, you know what? We're going to put these marbles in a bag and you know, whatever, and you know if this one turns up, then it means this. If this stick falls out, whatever, it means that. And it was a way to attain divine will. Uh, so to, it, it really means here to receive something by divine will. It's not something that you work for. So it's very clear... If you understand our salvation and the source of our salvation that it comes from who it doesn't come from us, it comes from God. It clearly refers to something not attained by personal effort um, so it's 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 important that you understand that uh that w- that our salvation isn't something that we get because simply we want it that doesn't meet the standard it's it's really something their faith was because god willed to give it to them you're at the mercy of god beloved you can't save yourself you know, that's why we shouldn't be like the Pharisee who stands on the corner praying in all his robes and his glitter and all this stuff to, so that people will look at him and say, oh, look at how religious he is. No, we shouldn't be like that person. Jesus said that you should be like the guy who's over in the corner, not even willing to show his face, but beating his breast. Be merciful to me, God, a sinner. See, that's the, the salvation prayer that God will hear. You don't march into God's presence and say, hey, you owe me salvation. Now I'm here and I'm asking for it. you. Need to get. No, you're not going to get anything from God that way. The Bible says you have to come humbly. You have to come broken. You have to come understanding that he's your last chance. There's no other way for you to be saved outside of calling upon the divine name and work of Jesus Christ. There's no back door. There's no third or second choice doesn't work that way there's only one way jesus said it himself i'm the way the truth and the what the life no man comes to the father but through me you say well that sounds kind of narrow well it is take that up with god i didn't make that he did you know so there's there's one gate it's a narrow gate and you better make sure that you're gonna get through that gate because if you don't it says broad is the way to destruction there is a place called hell that's very real And you will endure the wrath of God for all eternity if you end up there. So it's it's very important that you understand that, you know, what, what Peter is saying here is that I'm writing to those who have obtained a faith because God gave it to them. Who received the faith. Does he just mean general teaching? What's he talking about here? See, he's not talking about doctrine. Because there's only kind of one doctrine, one body of doctrine here that's true. But he's talking about, really, the power to believe. He's talking about the power to believe in God for your salvation. Where does that come from? And what he's saying is, you know what? The only way that you could ever possibly believe in Jesus Christ is if God gave you the power and the desire. It's all God. It's you, nothing. And we have a problem with that sometimes. Because we realize that it's kind of a humiliating, humble doctrine. The doctrine that God grants to us, our faith, The doctrine that God chooses us, Ephesians says, before the foundation of the world. You mean, God, you chose me before I was ever even born? You didn't know that, you didn't see me playing the piano and say, oh, I'll use him. You didn't see this person's good looks and say, oh, that, that would be a good representative for me. Or you didn't see that person's gifting and say, oh, they would be wonderful. I need that person on my team. See, sometimes I think we think that God's lined us all up against the wall, like in gym class. You remember in gym class when you used to have to pick teams? I used to hate that. You know, you'd all line up, and then they'd get some super jocks, two super jocks out there that were, you know, incredible sports, and they'd begin to pick. Usually I wasn't one of the first ones picked. It was kind of humiliating. That's how we think sometimes that God is choosing us. Well, who's the most strapping? Who's, who's going to do the most for my kingdom? And that's the opposite of what the Bible says, right? He said he's chosen what? The foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So the next time you call yourself a Christian, just know you're calling yourself a fool. Right? That's right. A fool for Christ. Amen. And that's, it's so important that we, we don't have an inflated look at, About ourselves and about our own spiritual being. Because you know what? There's nothing there to be inflated. We're nothing without the grace of God. Absolutely nothing. He gives us that faith, that power to believe unto salvation. And then he says there also that it's a faith of equal standing with ours. It's a faith of equal standing with ours. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourself. What? It's a gift of God. Salvation, including the faith to believe, is part of the gift that God gives us. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it tells us this, And even if our gospel is veiled or shielded, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, it says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded, listen, the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Wow. Next time you begin to judge unbelievers for whatever, begin to realize that, you know what? God has to work in their lives. It's not like you can take an unbeliever and say, okay, I'm going to teach you how to be a Christian. You can't do that. Matter of fact, we have a lot of people in the churches today that went through that very process. We took people that maybe raised their hand or whatever. We said, well, now we've got to teach you what a Christian is. And so they learn all about Christianity. They learn the lingo. They learn what to do, what not to do. And then they try to live this Christian life and after a couple of weeks, they're utterly frustrated and realize, what is this? this is, and they, they find themselves at odds. They come to church and they're one person. But the rest of the week out in the world, there's totally somebody else. And the two don't match. And that adds just depression and frustration. And they end up just being frustrated with the whole thing. And usually they just walk away from the church entirely saying, you know what? It doesn't work. Well, the fact of the matter is, is they never really tried the real thing. They never were really truly saved. Because if you're truly saved, beloved... You know what? I don't care if you have anybody to disciple you or not. God's going to take care of his own. He's going to provide people around you. I mean, I, I was a case in point. I was saved when I was 19 out of the Catholic Church. Didn't have a clue about the Bible. Nothing. Went right back to a secular college. But you know what? God put a desire in me, and I took my old King James Bible, Schofield Reference Bible, and I started to read it, even though it was hard to understand. And I just had a desire to try to understand it. And I realized something inside me said, you know what? You need to go to church. I mean, I had that as a Catholic anyway growing up. I went to Mass every week for 19 years. Sometimes more than once. But I remember thinking, well, I don't know where to go to church. You know, I wasn't going to ask some college buddies that didn't know the Lord. You know, they were already making fun of me for reading my Bible. I thought, well, I saw it steeple thing down the road here. It was First Baptist Church at Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. That's where I ended up. Very fundamentalist, rigid church. But you know what? I learned a lot of neat things from those people in a couple years. Learned what it meant to serve Christ. You know, I had nobody alongside of me showing me step by step. But I had the Holy Spirit within me. See, so don't... I mean, I believe in discipleship. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes I think we start that whole process prematurely with people. And they don't even know Christ yet, and we're assuming they do, and so we're trying to teach them all these doctrines, and they don't have a clue. Let's wait a little bit and see if God truly has transformed them from the inside out. Because if he has, then it's going to be evident. Romans 12 says, For the grace, for through gr- the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted allotted to each a measure of faith. Our faith comes from God. It's all equal. We all get the same faith. Saving faith. Ephesians six twenty three says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All that comes from God. Even in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. But it has been granted to you by, God's, by God for Christ's sake to believe. God grants us our faith that we believe. You can't believe unless God gives it to you through the faith that he gives you. So we need to get our theology right, especially when we're out there evangelizing people. Sometimes we go out and we evangelize people and we think, okay, we're going to talk this person into the kingdom. No, you're not. You're not. You may talk them into church. They're still going to hell, but they're coming to church. That doesn't help anybody. We need to wait on God and see what God is is activating in their heart. See if they're responsive to the gospel. Jesus, when he shared with people, he would always give grace to the humble and the law to the proud. When people are prideful, they need to understand that they're not matching up to what God's law says. But you don't take somebody who is, is humbled And throw the law at them? No, you give them the grace of God. So many times we're too quick to give the grace of God before people understand that they're lost. So this this faith is one of equal standing. It's equal privilege. Everybody has the same faith. And then he says there, quickly in closing, he says, By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, we have this faith to believe, and we're saved because... God's righteousness is given to us. This isn't a righteousness of our own. It isn't something we conjure up from within and try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and live a new life or start a new, turn over a new leaf. That's not what we're talking about here. It's something that it says that's the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's imputed to us. It's set upon us. Romans 3.26 says, For the demonstration of, I say of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, when one puts their faith in Jesus, it's it's a God-given faith. And it's God who justifies that person. It's God who makes us righteous. We don't make ourselves righteous. Going to church doesn't make you righteous. Giving tithes and offerings does not make you righteous. Romans 4 5 says, But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies or makes righteous the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. It's not about what you do, beloved. It's about what was done on your behalf. It's so important. In the majority of the New Testament texts that talks about faith, where you have faith and righteousness, the righteousness is not. The, uh, the equity of God, the righteousness, is the holiness of God that he imputes to us. So when God gives you the faith to believe, he then gives you the righteousness that you need to be saved. I mean, that's the only kind of righteousness that's going to save you is the righteousness that God gives you, the righteousness that God gives you that covers your sin, that makes you acceptable to God. That's his point. God makes us righteous. God grants his righteousness to us. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When it says that, in the original language, there's only one article before our God of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, what that does is it makes that refer to one person. <laughs> I mean, you could say it this way, our God is Savior, Jesus Christ. That's really what the literal Greek says. Our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is God. It's all put together right there in a nice little neat package for our Mormon friends to visit. He's God. That's why he can save us. So we see that our salvation is something that we can know and the source of it is from God through our God, Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that he has made that truth evident to you. And I pray that he'll be gracious to you. That He'll give you this faith that we speak of. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we pray this morning that you would do your work in the hearts of your people. And Father, we pray that you would do your work in all the hearts gathered here. And if there's any here who have yet to understand what it means to be saved by your glorious grace, We know that we can't save them. They can't even save themselves. But Lord, you can. Uh, Salvation is God's gift to us. And Father, we pray that they would come to understand through your divine revelation to their heart that there's no other name under heaven whereby you can be saved. And that they would cry out to you, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, show me. Help me in my unbelief. Hard to believe that we don't live in a world that was created by God when we look at the beauty that we see around us, even here in the Bay Area. You look at the human body, and I mean, your heart just tells you that this wasn't something that just came out of a swamp one day. Somehow there had to be a designer. There had to be someone who planned this. There had to be someone who constructed it and thought it out. Created it. And to think that that creator wants to know you. But because of your sin. There's a gap there. There's a a void. That's why he provided his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he could. Bridge that gap that he could forgive your sin. That he could put on you the righteousness that you don't have. That's his real desire. Not so much that he would be able to know you, but that you would know him in a very real and personal way. And Father, we pray as believers that you would remind us of these things. As we leave here and go out into a lost and dying world that's filled with sin. Father, that we have the words of hope and forgiveness that can truly save through the power of the gospel. Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word and for your grace and mercy to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.